The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, the Market Watch edition. Um, I'm Lucas Alpert. I'm the financial crime reporter at Market Watch. And uh, today we are uh, uh, we're doing our, our monthly episode of The Darker Side of Money, where we explore the bad things that people do when money gets in the way. So um, today we're going to be going back in time and we're going to look at the long sorted history of financial scams, cons, frauds, whatever it is. And we have joining us today, Ben Carlson, the director of institutional asset management at Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's also the author of a number of books such as Invest Your, Money to, Invest Your Way to Financial Freedom, Everything You Need to Know About Saving for Retirement, and probably most relevant for our topic today, Don't Fall For It, A Short History of Financial Scams. Ben, thank you for coming on the show. Glad to be here. Um, let's talk about this book. Um, what what made you decide to write this? I mean, I've seen a lot of weird stories, and I, I think the the first thing that got me interested in this was just the Bernie Madoff story and how crazy it is. And you kind of just listen to these stories and you shake your head, and you learn about these charlatans and these hucksters and these people who are really good at sales. And then you wonder, like, who are the types of people who do these kind of scams? And then you get into that, and then I kind of go down the rabbit hole of I'm pulling a thread and I'm wondering, well, what type of environment is typically around when people then these financial scams thrive. And then you wonder, like, how do financial markets fit into this equation? Because I follow the markets and investing. And then I just wondered, you know, one of the best ways to explain people's decisions when it comes to money, because money can make us all do crazy things, is like, how do you weave finance and crazy stories and financial markets and behavioral psychology and poor decision making all into one? And that was kind of this idea of why do people over time always get scammed? <laughs> and I, I look back hundreds of years and I looked... And some of these scams, it's like it happened in the 1400s, but it could have happened today. Basically, just different time, different, you know, different place. And I just wanted to know, like, what is the thing that makes us so susceptible to this? Well, maybe let's go back to that. What, what was going on in the to, to walk me through a, a financial fraud of the 1400s? I'd be curious to see, you know, how, you know, I write about this all the time, I'm sure you know, what you're going to describe is something that, you know, I was like, could have been pulled out of a court filing from yesterday, right? Yeah, and, and some of the, the crazier ones were dealing with, uh, you know, these letters being sent out to people saying, uh, send us $100 and uh, we'll give you the opportunity to marry our princess who comes <laughs> with all this, you know, big pile of treasure with her too, right? And these people send money. And the funny thing is, is a lot of times it was more noble people who did it, like people with actual wealth. And they there were stories about them trying to track their money all the way back down from going from uh, where they lived all the way down to Mexico. Uh, and it's just, it's crazy how people want to believe a good story when it's told to them. They want to believe that like, this sounds a little too good to be true, but what if for me, it's not too good to be true? Like, what if there is this secret <laughs> path? And that's the thing that is really over time, uh, kind of the thing that weaves us all together is just people, even though in the back of their head, they might think like, well, no, there, there can't be this prince who's going to send me a million dollars because I happen to be from his lineage from thousands of years ago. But like, what if, what if it really is true? That's the thing that people always say, like they want to believe for them that it's true. 
wasn't that the, the the ultimate aspect of being a good con man or con person is uh you know being able to identify that 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 need that want that your you know your your victim has and you know it's kind of latching onto that yeah well that that's the thing is they they under people who do that understand human behavior and this whole behavioral finance revolution i guess you could say it really started like 20 30 years ago you know daniel kahneman and some of these people and they've won Nobel prizes for it but the people who understand behavioral psychology and in, in you know human nature uh, they use it for bad and like they've understood this more than anyone uh, you know again like how to take the the worst of us in some ways and our emotions and use them against us hmm. I mean I thought it was interesting you know obviously you know in the current uh, time frame you know the most famous fraud is probably Bernie Madoff um, and you know when I've sort of studied up the mechanics of what he did it was not a particularly sophisticated scam it was just a very basic ponzi scheme which has been done you know since ponzi hundreds of thousands of times over um he just did it at such a high level with the the money involved was so immense and he kept the plates spinning for so long and the interesting thing about that one is that madoff wasn't promising like if you go back to charles ponzi he was promising like 40 percent returns in a month right Right. and and that's like immediate red flag people should have known that they wanted to believe again Madoff was promising like 11% returns a year, 12% returns a year, but you just never lost money. I think he, right. he his performance reported, obviously it was fake, was like, I think there was only one down quarter over how many of our years right. he did it. And, and he was he was more preaching like, I can keep your money safe. And I think there's right. something to that too, where people just don't get it. And actually, I, I talked in my book, this, this guy uh, wrote, he, he's the foremost expert in human gullibility, right? Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called The Annals of Gullibility. <laughs> ironically enough it came out in december of 2008 when bernie madoff that whole thing blew up in his face right. and it kind of came out but the crazy thing about this book is it, i think it, the the subtitle of the book was like um human gullibility how to avoid getting duped basically right. and the kicker was this guy who wrote the book was an investor in one of the feeder funds that went into madoff oh, so the guy who was literally the the foremost expert on human gullibility and fallibility invested in bernie madoff's fund and this guy was kind enough to like write a few op-eds for the wall street journal and talk about it and he talked about how like all the things he writes about he basically fell for every single Hmm. one of them he was gullible enough to give his money away because he wanted to believe that's amazing um maybe talk about some of the other frauds that you looked at that maybe aren't so well known but maybe you know you know obviously there's some common threads among these things but like you know what is maybe some real like a real classic example that maybe so, like it's not as famous the the majority of them actually took place during like the early 1900s where we were having this big huge revolution in technology and stuff but one of the my favorite ones that actually kind of was the impetus for this book there was this guy named John Brinkley, he was a doctor, or so he claimed. He, he actually never paid for, he never finished medical school. And this is back in the day before they had as many rules and regulations on what you needed to become a doctor. He basically mm-hmm. bought a diploma for $100. <laughs> he went to this small town in Kansas where they really needed a doctor. And it was in the middle of farms, and his, his office was right next to this big field of goats. And a guy came into his office, and he said, listen, doc, uh, I'm a flat tire, basically. I, whatever we try, my wife cannot get pregnant. Mm-hmm. He said... I think I'm not sterile enough. I don't know. You know, this is back before they had any fertility treatments, any of this stuff. And the guy said, it's really too bad. I don't have billy goat nuts. And the, the doctor is like, well, what? And he said, you know, billy goats apparently uh, are supposed to be very virile and like strong in that department. And the doctor who had been, you know, just this middling little family doctor at that point said, oh my gosh, there's a cash cow here. 
this is this is a true story. It's there's a book written about it. They, they might make a Matt Damon movie about it. Apparently, the a script has been sold and it's it's potentially in the works. All right, that sounds interesting already. <laughs> this this guy literally did a surgical procedure on this guy where he took testicles from a goat and oh, surgically God. implanted them into <laughs> this oh, human guy. Right. And the like correlation causation of all things, this guy's wife got pregnant like a month later. And so everyone in town says, this guy is a genius. Look what he did. And he ended up turning into like one of the biggest scam artists of all. So he, he concocted all these crazy things. And the, the bad part is he, he ended up being almost like a serial killer level of death that resulted from all his stuff he did from the medicines he tried to right. concoct. I mean, this is still pre-penicillin days, right? And he was giving these people, he, was, he started a radio show. And it said, even during the Great Depression, this guy made a million dollars which back then is a ton of money. So just scamming people. And it, it, it wasn't until like the regulatory bodies finally chased him and shut him down. Uh, but it's so it, one of the craziest things I've ever heard. And it's crazy. So the, the guy died. Uh, he finally went broke because they, they kind of figured him out and they shut him down. Uh, and there was a guy who showed up at his funeral. And he said, I, I got the quote. He, he said, I, know, I knew this guy was bilking me, but I kind of liked him anyway. Like that's how good of a salesperson <laughs> this guy was. He was giving these fake, you know, remedies and, and potions and, and mm. surgical procedures and people were literally dying from it. And and he's taking all their money. And yet these people still were like, ah, I, he was such a good guy, though. It's it's uh, it's crazy how if you have that gene in you, that ability to sell someone and tell a good story, how you can just have them eating out of the palm of your hand. And that's what most of these people do. I think, you know, it's interesting, you know, what people said about Bernie Madoff was similar to he fit their expectations of who that guy should be. And he was very debonair and, you know, had a, he seemed serious and he wasn't promising the moon You know, he was promising above average returns. It all seemed plausible. And he just, he fit what they wanted from a, a guy like that. And, you know, he had this pedigree, he'd been the head of the NASDAQ, it all kind of worked. So I guess, you know, you, you, you tailor, if you're a con man, you tailor your con to your audience, right? So that's, that seems to and, be. And that is part of it is that these people knew their audience. There's there a bunch of stories. There was one story where this guy would go to the fanciest hotels in town mm -hmm. and he had this Romanian money box. And he said, listen, I have this box. It's, it's magic. I can't tell what's, what's happening. And he, he would go sell it to people like at the bar at this hotel and he'd bring them to his room and he would, he would show them how, if you put uh, a piece of paper in, the other side out the other side of it would spit out a hundred dollar bill. He said, but it takes a few hours. So what he would do is he would tell them, I'm gonna put it in, we're gonna come back in a few hours and it's gonna spit out a hundred dollar bill. And you can see he'd go wine and dine them and and, and really like show these rich people how great he was. And then he'd come back and a hundred dollar bill would come out and he'd he'd sell it to these people for thousands of dollars and you can create your own money. <laughs> he said, You just have to wait. And what the people didn't realize is that he had just set up a contraption with one one hundred dollar bill in it that it was set up to spit out. And these people assumed that they could. And by the time it spit out another hundred dollar bill and they realized it didn't work, it was six hours later and he was gone. And so, yeah, so like no, the, this guy knew that like the, the best place to get people were places that had a lot of money. And that, that's actually one of the things that is the most surprising, I think, is that the people who get built the most often are are kind of the people you would assume wouldn't because they have more knowledge and they have more money and resources. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to remind the audience that uh, we will take some listener questions at the end. So if you have them, you know, type them in and we'll get to that, you know, in the last, you know, five minutes or so. So just a reminder for that. Um, you know, 
what is like is there a, a common thread you know like what what is it that that if if there's one thing that every con always has i don't know if there is one thing but is there some or a common a couple of common threads that you know want a telltale sign that you know somebody should be looking for even in the most sophisticated kind of scheme i mean i i boil it down to what are some of the common themes in the environment and, and of course like i said it's like an expert with a good story mm-hmm. Uh, I think anytime the financial markets are rocking and greed is is sort of abundant, it's it's really easy for financial frauds to to take over. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, when the the banking industry gets involved and there's some sort of you know capital being blind was the, the term I used. Uh, another one is just when innovation runs rampant, like when there's a huge technological change. And I mentioned the 20s. That's when we had this huge change. Like the markets finally took off. Uh, in the 20s, and of course, after World War One, and after the, the Spanish flu went through, mm-hmm. and you had this this time when everyone was seemingly getting rich, and markets were going crazy, and people were just more willing to suspend their level of disbelief for something happening. Uh, that's the kind of you know environment where where something can happen. And, and again, I, I think there was one study done by a, a researcher from Santa Barbara University, and they looked at people who had had a financial fraud against them like they they lost some money in a financial fraud and then people who hadn't what they did is they gave each group a questionnaire 10 questions and it was actually relatively detailed like how much do you know about finance and the markets and investing and the funny thing was is that the group of normal people that they surveyed actually scored less on the test than the people who got had a financial fraud uh against them right so they got scammed and the reason they figured it out was because the people with more knowledge actually were more overconfident in their abilities and they assumed, well, it's never going to happen to me. And if, if this person is putting it in front of me, then I must be special. So it's not going to happen to me. So it's, it's actually kind of counterintuitive that the fact that the people who actually have some financial knowledge and they're financially literate, they're more likely to get taken advantage of than people who are more naive. You, you assume it's people who have no idea what they're doing and they don't know it, you know, but it's actually the people with a lot of money who actually kind of have a little bit of knowledge that can be uh, their worst enemy, basically. All right now. Um, I mean, what I write about a lot is oftentimes with the with the kind of the, the most pernicious kind of scams, the retirees are often the most targeted here. Um, wh- what in your mind, I don't know if that's what you saw over history. It seemed like that uh, if that's a, a common thread. But, you know, what do you think makes, you know, people who are retired or, or older more vulnerable to these kind of things? Well, um, obviously, they have more money. They have yeah, more financial sure. assets. So right. they have a target on their back in a lot of ways. I, I think the tech, technological part of it is a plays a big role in this, right? Because uh, technology is changing. I think when people are so stuck in their ways, once you get older, it's, it's harder to change your mind. And that's really why something like the internet has supercharged the ability of mm-hmm. people to, it just opens up a wider audience. So I talked about a lot of the stuff I studied was in like the early 1900s it was harder to get in front of a big group of people and really take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the radio was one of the first things that allowed people to do this. And if you were one of these people that did that, this was a new technology for, and you didn't understand how it worked and you just kind of trusted any voice you heard on that radio, it was much easier to get taken advantage of. So I think, mm-hmm. I, I think older people just because they're set in their ways and maybe they have a little more trust and faith in, in humanity and these sort of things, it's, it's just a little easier. But I, I also mm-hmm. think it's just, it's it's a bigger group because they have that target on their back because they have just more money and people right. more people there's more opportunity to take advantage of them. What's well, interesting, I mean, like you know, the the one of the scams you mentioned at the beginning of the space, what is you know now called the advance fee scam, you know, where you'd send a letter saying you know you've you've won the lotto, but you have to send me fifty bucks to get your prize, and of course you send your fifty bucks, and you never get the prize. 
that's a, a very old scam. And nowadays, you know, it continues to go on. And, you know, it's obviously the internet has made it so, you know, in the old days, if somebody wanted to send those letters out, I mean, how many letters could you send out in, in a week? You know, like hundreds, maybe thousands. But emails, you can send out millions, you know. So, yeah. you know, it's a... You know, I don't know what the, the 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 success rate is on that, but you know, it's it's even if it's 0.001 percent. Well, if you send out 10 million emails, you, that that actually amounts to something. You know, it's like so. Yeah, the 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 speed, uh, the ability to to reach huge amounts of people. Uh, well, there was the, there was a story of Jason Statham as an actor in all the Fast mm-hmm. and the Furious movies, and he's been a bunch of action flicks. And there was a Facebook message to a woman in London and said, basically, they became friends, right? Jason Statham, this woman, this random woman. And he kind of said, listen, I'm between movies. And if you could just send me some money until I get my paycheck, I'll, I'll pay you back with interest. I, I just kind of, you know, I'm just waiting for that, that I live kind of paycheck to paycheck. And this is a guy making millions of dollars on movies. Right. And this woman had sent hundreds of thousands of dollars to the scam artist who pretended to be Jason Statham on the Internet. And actually thought, well, this I, I just happened to become friends with them on Facebook. Right. Like it's crazy. And, and her whole thing was too, like you mentioned, she was an older woman, and and I think uh, naively assumed, oh, this Facebook person must be telling me exactly the truth here because it's on this new system. And and of course they have to be telling the right. truth. Like how could you know, I, how could I not become friends with the movie star? So yeah, I think it, you're right. It's just it, it's so much easier to just send it out and, and hope for the best. Right. I think that a lot of those, you know, the romance scams, it's a volume play. You know, they just yes. they, they send out tens of thousands of pitches and, you know, if one out of a thousand actually reply. They're probably doing pretty well. Um, let's talk about just general lesson. Like if I'm studying, you know, I'm, a, I'm a person in the market. I'm trying to understand, you know, what lessons can I learn from somebody's, you know, unfortunate uh, uh contact with somebody like this one of the things that i tell people uh the biggest red flag is if, if a money manager has custody of your assets so that was bernie madoff right he <clears throat> he actually held the money so i i work for a wealth management firm all of the money that we manage for clients is held at a third-party custodian bank mm-hmm. right fidelity or charles schwab or northern trust or one of these you know banks that handles it for right. you and, and the clients own the assets bernie madoff had custody of the assets man he had control he could do whatever he wants, and that's how he could create these false statements. He could move the money where he wanted to without permission of his clients. Mm-hmm. So, if the money manager has custody of your assets, like the 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 probability of a fraud goes way up. I think anytime there's like this aura of exclusivity, and like again, we found the secret. You know, that that's a, that's a huge red flag. If the returns are just too ridiculously good, you know, we're, we're offering you, we're guaranteeing you 50% returns every year. If you don't understand that, like the capital market assumptions and expectations built in the different markets, if the returns are just so good, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's easy. Obviously, again, the, the whole story is too good to be true type of thing. I think also if it's almost like too complicated to understand and the, the person on the other end of the pitch, just, just kind of like, trust me, we got this. Like they, they won't tell you if you try to ask, ask them to be a little more transparent I think that that that's another another big red flag. Yeah, it was a one I it was uh, looking at a case uh, recently with involved, um, uh, you know, a, a, a fake pastor, you know, and they were selling some investment vehicles that were supposed to be like sort of charitable Christian kind of focus sort of thing. They were going after people who wanted to invest in that. But I was reading through the court documents trying to understand, like, what exactly were they selling these people? I didn't understand it at all. And I, actually, you know. I've, you know, worked for the Wall Street Journal. I've, you know, covered finance 
and markets for a long time. So I have a fair grasp on like, right. you know, investment products. And this one was just like, I don't even know what it was. And I think they just, you know, they got people who had money, but, you know, were maybe not market savvy. They were people who were good. Yes. In business. Well, that, like, uh, yeah. that's crazy because actually one of the groups that came up over and over again was like doctors and dentists. Mm -hmm. And again, right. because these are very smart people who went to a lot of school and they assume that those, that intelligence should be portable over to the market and translate mm -hmm. easily. And there was one scam. It was actually a bunch of doctors, dentists, and then former NFL players mm -hmm. that got scammed. And this guy from Atlanta said uh, he had this magical formula to short stocks. And he said shorting stocks could make 28% a year. And that's one of those things, too, of understanding the markets and, and saying, well, the markets generally go up over time, right? Every On average, every three out of every four years, the stock market is up over time. It's, it's hard to bet against it. And this guy was saying, I can deliver almost 30% average returns by betting against the market, betting against the stocks in the market. And no one bothered to say, well, that doesn't make any sense. How are you, how are those assumptions even possibly right. true? And that this guy had taken all the money and and bought Porsches and Lamborghinis and Ferraris and huge houses and and, and of course that sort of stuff. So yeah, just just those those fair assumptions to go. Well, if this sounds too good to be true, maybe I need to look in a little more because it probably is. I always think that the you know the uh, the thing that that like in the the various things that I write about the various frauds, you know, it's usually um, the fraudster identifies some, if they're defrauding, say, you know, a government or a bank or something like that, you know, it's like they find some loophole or some weird like kink in the system and they just exploit it and they say, oh, wait, that worked. And then they just do it again and again and again until like so, whatever the money they've stolen becomes so large. It's like somebody's, you know, it's impossible to to miss. Well, and that's, that was and, also the crazy thing is how many of these, these con artists, like they built up over time and had done a few little things and then built up up to the, the bigger thing, right? Right. Yeah, it's it's greed, I think, is always the ultimate downfall for, for these things is that it, get, it just gets too large for to be ignored. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the Lamborghinis and the Corvettes and things like that. That's always the, the thing. It's like, couldn't you just have gone above Volvo? I don't know. Right. You know, it's like, why do you have to bring attention to yourself? I mean, not that I'm trying to give ideas to hucksters out there, but look, scams are as old as the ages. I mean, are there any new developments or is it just like this follows a playbook that's been gone on since the beginning of time? I mean, there's this, this old Jesse Livermore quote, who was a trader in the, the early 1900s who, who just said, um, human nature is as old as the hills and and in kind of anything that's happened it's going to happen again that's the kind of deal that's the one thing i found e even though we have different developments uh technology improves and the internet helps you know access more people uh it's it's crazy how often it's just those emotional hearts and you mentioned you know a church group being taken advantage of the the john brinkley guy who was doing the goat testicle implantations mm -hmm. he was taking advantage of people who were at the lowest of lows it was people who couldn't uh get pregnant and have a family and so you pull on those heartstrings when people are at their most vulnerable and you take advantage of them with, with stuff like that. There was another one of, of this, this, this Scottish guy, and it, this might have been one of the worst ones ever. And he promised these people if they, if they sail from Scotland uh, down to South America, he's, he's got this basically glorious new place for them to live. And it's full of uh, great uh, soil to plant on and water and place to build and he's like they can basically build this this new home and it was like four shiploads of people back in the 1700s and he they all of course had to pay ahead of time to to get on his ship and go uh and they got to this place that was basically uninhabitable and the majority of people got sick and died 
hmm. when they got there, but they wanted to believe that this like utopia was out there without ever stopping and thinking like, well, why is he doing this? Why isn't he setting up his own thing there? And, and, and of course, the guy didn't even go with them, uh, which is another red flag. But yeah, anytime you can kind of just pick on people's emotions where they're they're not thinking straight and they're they're using their emotions instead of their brain uh yeah that it's a good recipe for that is there like a certain i mean you you talked about psychology at the beginning and uh uh you know is there like a certain psychological type of person who becoming obviously oh they're all sociopaths and maybe that's true but you know is it is there something more to the kind of person who kind of can do this and just defraud people without batting an eyelash i i do think some people you for some of them i think they they were just complete sociopaths but i think there's other people who sort of work their way slowly into it and it's like they they found something that worked and even if they didn't mean to take advantage of people they did and they, they slowly like you said built their way up and worked their way up so a lot of them started off with these really minor scams and, and one of the guys uh uh th this guy in paris who had 95 different aliases he started off just doing little scams on the street and he was doing card games and taking advantage of people that way and he slowly but surely worked his way up and his his sort of uh biggest scam he did is he this is in the early 1900s promised this group of this well-known group of people who uh would sell scrap metal that the eiffel tower was for sale and that the, mm -hmm. the city of paris was going to take the eiffel tower down and the crazy thing, sale, like <laughs> yes, but the crazy thing is, is that he got this guy to pay him, and the guy was who paid him this money and realized, okay, I, I he went to the the city council people, or whatever, and said, okay, I'm here for my Eiffel Tower, <laughs> I'm gonna make all this money selling for scrap, and they kind of said, what are you talking about? Uh, was was so uh, embarrassed that he didn't want to press charges, and the guy tried to do it again, mm. weeks later, tried to sell the Eiffel Tower. Again, so so I think it's like people get their foot in the door and then they get they grow confidence that they can that no one will ever catch them and everything will be fine and they can get away with everything and that's why they they get to these extravagant points in their life where they they sort of flaunt it because they feel like well no one's ever gonna gonna catch me I'm I'm untouchable basically and I think they want to believe that uh, what they're doing isn't really harming people if if those people are willingly giving them money. Um, I think we have a couple of questions that come in from the audience, so maybe we'll turn to that. Um, this one comes from Ashley. Um, how will Biden's billionaire tax potentially drive wealthy Americans to hide their wealth in offshore accounts to evade taxes? And how can we work with international bodies to counter those dirty money tactics? Not quite a scam question, but um, uh, but you know, if you have some thoughts on that. I mean, it, it, that is obviously the, the biggest problem with some sort of any sort of wealth tax is the fact that the people who it's going to go after are the same people who can afford the best tax and CPA people that could mm -hmm. potentially hide it. So I, I do think that is one of the, the problems with this is the fact that trying to go after that wealth, I think there's always going to be wealthy people who have the best sort of advisors and tax attorneys and CPAs mm -hmm. to hide it. I don't think that there's much. I don't think that there's many ways around that. Do you? I, I no. I mean, I think you know, there's always going to be people who are, have the wherewithal to sidestep, but maybe there are people who sort of fall in the middle who might have the 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 knowledge or interest in going overseas, but maybe don't want to go that far. I mean, that's the question. Is like on on a question like that, it's really like, how dishonest are you? Do you want to honestly pay your taxes and follow the rules, or are you trying to find a way around it? And if you're willing to do that, then it's. I always sort of figure like, you know, if somebody's willing to 
steal your car, let's say, you know, it's like if they're professional and focused on their professional car thief, there's nothing you can do to stop the person from stealing your car. All the alarm systems in the world, they're going to get your car if they're focused on it. So, you know, this is a question of, you know, in terms of offshoring your money, like if you want to evade taxes and you're really focused on it, you're going to find a way to do it. You know, it's just maybe the, the if you put the rules in place, you make penalties that are legitimate. Maybe you stop some people who don't maybe have the stomach for being such a, you know, taking such criminal act. I don't know. And maybe that's an aspect of, of what we're talking about is how much of it is that ability or willingness to to be dishonest and break the law you know that then that that i guess puts somebody who's just trying to get one over into becoming i am a con artist you know it's like um that that willingness to do well it. There, so one of one of the these stories was was from this guy in the in the 1920s and he started off as a legitimate businessman and and his business was growing great. He's actually called the Match King, and he he made all his money starting off in Sweden building match factories of all things. Mm-hmm. Um, there was very high margins on building, and this is back when people smoked a lot, right? So right. matches were in high demand, and he built a very legitimate business. And as the business started sort of crumbling around him in the Great Depression, he started um, getting into debt instruments because there was all this these financial market innovations that occurred during that decade of the twenties. And he was selling these debt instruments where he was borrowing at 8%, but then paying out like 25% to investors to get more money to come in to keep growing his empire. And the crazy thing is, is all these, he was like the time man of the year, mm. like two, year, two years before he ended up shooting and killing himself because he he bankrupt and lost his whole company and lost all his money. But all the people at the time were saying, you know, he was a legitimate businessman who just slowly but surely sort of lost his way. And probably had good intentions when he started and just got in over his head. And it right. wasn't, I don't think he was one of these sociopathic people who was no. trying to take advantage. He was just trying to keep his businesses and own interests afloat and, and kind of ended up down the wrong path trying to keep himself going. I feel like, you know, when I write about embezzlement, you know, half the time it's usually somebody's in some financial straits and they say, you know, I just need to, I, I, I'm going to give myself a loan from the company yes. or whatever and I, I'll pay it back. And yeah. then it just, they can't pay it back. Yeah, once I figure it out, then I'll right. then I'll get even and we'll, right. we'll stop him. But then they know how to do it and they do it again. You know, that's typically what happens. All right. I think we have one more question uh, from John. Uh, what is your view of, quote, legal fraud as defined by Jim Chanos? And how prevalent is it in your view within U.S. markets and global markets? So I, I guess I don't know Chanos's uh, definition of legal fraud, but I guess it probably gets back to your point of of things that are maybe we would be frowned upon, but uh, still are are legal. Mm. Uh, and I guess this is probably something in the system that you're you're probably never going to be able to root out because there there are going to be people who will care much more about making money than how it would impact their reputation. Right. I guess. Uh, I think some people are just kind of hardwired that way. And, and that's something that is, is pro- you're not going to be able to shame enough people to, to get that to stop, I would imagine. Yeah, I think that's a, a lot of times when I, you know, talk to people about, the, you know, the 2008 financial crisis, you know, a lot of the mechanics that drove it were not really against the law. They just were probably, when you think about it, like, why would you do that? You know, sell products well, that are garbage. Yeah, so and I, like, no, like, <laughs> in, in my book, I, I, I say there's basically... I like the word charlatan because mm-hmm. it, it's just William Bernstein is who's a financial history writer said that the only reason that the word guru came around is because charlatan is so hard to spell. Uh, <laughs> but but he he kind of helped me develop this idea that there's like two types of charlatans And this first charlatan is the one you talk about the sociopath who 
they go out of their way and their whole whole plan is to take people and you know bilk them out of their money. But then you have the second type who ends up through either a lack of self-awareness or common sense and they really believe in what they're doing, but they still end up taking people down with them anyway because they're just so uh, blinded by whatever they're trying to do or they don't understand or they don't realize what they're doing is, is take and they end up taking themselves. So that that's like someone like Dick fold at Lehman brothers, probably. Right. Right. I mean, he still walked away and I think he did okay, but he lost, I don't know, a billion dollars and he took the whole company out with him, probably never thinking he would, he, he thought he was going to be fine right. and never realized like, Oh, what I'm doing is, is just driving straight into this iceberg. So I think it's something like that where, and that might be the harder one to figure out, right? The people who are sociopaths and who are just selling you and telling you everything you want to hear, that might be easier to understand than someone who actually believes what they're saying, mm. even though they're probably wrong and they're still going to take take you down with them, like the captain oh. of the sinking ship. That's a very that's a very fair distinction. Um, I think that's all the time we have for today. Ben, thanks for joining us and thanks to our audience for tuning in. Um, please join Barron's Roundtable next Monday. Uh, executives and top economists will have discussions about the risks facing corporate executives and investors today. Explore what you need to know about the geopolitical turmoil, supply chain disruptions, labor shortages, and the prospect of rising interest rates. Thank you all for listening. Stay well. Have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.